speaking of generosity, may I say a word before we step into this text? And you've got this on social media, you got this on an email if you're in the church family and you're in that email, but you know, December is our year of, of global Christmas, less under our tree, more for the world. Over the last few years, we've given a million. We're moving towards that goal. And if you saw this, I just wanna make sure everyone understands, we went over a million dollars that you gave toward global, uh, local and global partners. And I don't wanna move past that without recognizing God's great faithfulness to our local and global partners through you and through everyone participating in that. So let me just pause a moment. Let's take a breath and let me say, Father, thank you for providing these resources that will go far beyond what we could ask or imagine. Thank you for what it means to local partners here in our community that we stand with and walk with and for partners around the world where they live to proclaim Christ to serve those in need, to make your name known. Would you magnify yourself through all and through every place that these resources go, we ask in Christ's name, amen. If you're not there, turn in your Bibles to John 17. You know, we just read that. We'll come back through it in a moment. Lisa and I have two daughters who don't live in, in, in town. Our, our middle one, Susan, lives in, in Brooklyn. Our youngest, Sally, is in Orlando right now. Um, whenever they uh, are, are headed home, and that, you know, we'll get them home a couple, several times a year, whenever they're traveling home, there's always this thing in a parent's mind and heart that's, I'm praying they get safely home. Uh, our son and daughter-in-law were recently out of the country and uh, just excited when you see your kids getting to do things that they want to do. And you, know, you pray for a great time for them, but it also you never miss this. It's in the back of your mind. I'm praying that they'll get safely home. Uh, you don't have to be you know, a, a, a parent. I mean, you, we, we feel this way about family. We feel this way about friends. When, when they're on a journey, you're, you're just... You don't miss that part of it. You pray that they'll get safely home. As we come to this part of our study of uh, the upper room discourse, we're in what we call the high priestly prayer. And, and I don't want us to miss a couple things. One would simply be this. You, do, you guys understand Jesus didn't have to do this, but the disciples remained in the room while he prayed to his father. This is not Jesus, you know, saying, you guys stay here. I got to spend some time with my father. Like he, he started praying while they're in the room. We're in the room hearing God, the son, talk to God, the father. And we see what's on his heart and we'll, we'll review where Rob was, but we're going to see where we go today. There's, <laughs> there's a part of his heart that is, concerned about his kids getting safely home. This journey is, is, is not home as in I've been on a business trip or you know vacation. It is home, capital H. It is that journey we all make from the moment we breathe our last breath until we breathe anew <laughs> with Christ as one who has put their trust in 
Christ, I just want you to, this is a thought exercise. You don't have to raise your hand, but if you've put your trust in Christ, how, how certain are you that you're gonna get safely home? I'll ask a second question on this one. Does that certainty really matter? Is it, is it, does it matter that you're certain of that eternal security? Well, in answer to the second question, just let me say this. Um, the fact that Jesus talks about it in this prayer, my goodness, does that not tell us? He really wants us to know this because it really matters. <laughs> and it really matters how we live our life what we believe about that moment in our future. John 17, I've mentioned this, it's a high priestly prayer. We've slowed it down and so it's 26 verses. We're gonna take it in five weeks. We have, you know, we've been going faster than that through John, but we wanna pause and in this prayer, Jesus prays for himself, really it's what Rob covered last week. And then in six through 19, he's gonna pray for the disciples in the room, but, and that means he's praying for us. And then in the back end, he's actually praying for those who will believe through us. Verses one through five last week for context, Rob showed us that the first thing he prays for when it's related to himself is glory, glory. Rob reminded us, you know, that the, the Hebrew roots of this word is really found in weights and measures. That the Hebrew word kavod meant, you know, how much does something weigh? Like literally, this is heavy. And it, it became to be used not just of this is heavy, but oh my, this person is heavy, i.e. significant. And this is where it speaks of God's glory. It's, it's the, the weight of God's nature. What would that weight be, by the way? Immeasurable, right? That's his glory, all that he is. Specifically, God's glory, Rob talked about in redeeming humanity. And by the way, I, I hope you, this stuck with you when Rob said it, because there's so much that we can be said on this and I'm sure we will in time. But we do understand when we put our trust in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, speaking, Will speaking earlier about belonging, that that's not just about, hey, we get to go to heaven when we die. There's a place for us in heaven. No, no, no. That in time, in that moment, we enter into the community of the Trinity. I mean, that, that should make our brains explode. Wait, wait. We enter into the communion of God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Spirit. Yes. You talk about belonging and belonging in a way that really, really matters. We're at verse six and it takes a turn. And now he's gonna turn, he's gonna move towards praying for the disciples. And this emphasis is gonna go all the way through 19. We're only gonna go to 13 today and then Rob will finish the second part. Here's an outline of the passage. So you know kind of where we're headed. We're gonna look at in verses six to eight, I've, I've titled that a belief that saves, a belief that saves. What's the nature of that belief? Secondly, a savior who secures, that's gonna be nine through 12. And then we'll look at a joy that satisfies verse 
13. Let's start here, look in your Bibles, verses six through eight, a belief that saves. Jesus is praying to the Father and, and prays. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and they have come to know the truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. Another thought exercise for you, just think about this. Have you ever thought about why you're a Christian if you've put your faith in Christ? whether in the room or online, those of you who've put your trust in the life, death, and resurrection, you're saved, you're born again, the spirit indwells you. You're a Christ follower. Have you ever, have you ever just stepped back and go, why, why am I a Christian? Well, the answer in part, of course, is what I just said. And you may be thinking that, Lloyd, I'm a Christian because I've put my trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ but I wanna go beyond that. I wanna actually go underneath it and behind it. Why, why did you put your trust in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus? And again, some of you may be, because I did. <laughs> if we took this passage, we took six through eight and we asked Jesus this, you know, just let Jesus speak to why someone becomes a Christian, why someone comes to faith. I would suggest Jesus says these things you were gods before you believed. He says it, he says you, they were yours. And then God the Father gave you to God the Son. And then God the Son made known God's, the Father's words to you. And then yes, here on the back end, yes, it, it says you kept the words, you believed. I want you to think about that. Takes nothing away from the necessity of faith. No, no, we must believe to, to, to become a Christian, to follow Christ. We have to have genuine belief. Notice Jesus doesn't diminish that necessity, right? Because when you, when you read through this, Jesus gave, says the words that Jesus gave to the disciples, it says, verse six, they kept them. What does that mean? Okay, so the word, Jesus gave us those words and, and, they, and we kept them. It means to conform one's actions to. Okay, so, so I have these words. I'm just not in my head. I, I'm gonna conform my life to these words. Verse eight, it says, they say they kept them. Verse eight says, then they receive. It says they received those words. It says they've come to know the truth. There's the mental ascent. And it says they've believed. So it's a rather robust belief that Jesus is talking about here, right? Necessary belief. Trust and obedience, two, two, two sides of the same coin. But understanding that before faith, and there's a mystery, there's a mystery to this, of course, but understand before faith that you were, you were gods and then God graciously gave you to Jesus and then Jesus opened your eyes to believe, you see, keeps our salvation, and I think in its proper context and our believing. And that is that our salvation is not ultimately something, I'll be so careful when I say this, I know it's gonna get like red flags go off in your head, but stay with me. That's something ultimately that we choose on our own 
become a Christian because I chose it. You gotta be careful. It's not that we choose on our own. It requires first the grace of God on our behalf. And now we find ourselves in the doctrine of election, which we covered back in chapter 10. I'm not gonna go deep into that right now. I'd encourage you, if you're new to the church or you missed that message, look at passage I covered back in John 10. A proper understanding of, of what the Bible teaches when it says election, there's a lot of misunderstanding, but a proper understanding I would suggest is important for these two reasons. It keeps salvation, or it says, change this. It keeps, it keeps all the glory of salvation where it belongs on God himself. <laughs> he initiates, he gives, he opens our eyes to then believe. We're incapable, you all, in our fallenness of of seeing the beauty of the gospel, of understanding it, Paul says, we can't discern these things apart from God acting on our behalf first. New Testament scholar, Gary Berg, I'll just put this quote up. I think it could help us. Here on the screen, I'll read it. It says, the devastating and controlling darkness of the world requires that God participate in our decision to come to the light or else no one would be saved. I.e., God must act first, graciously, freely, why me? You don't have to, I don't have the answer to that question other than God's, God's gracious gift to open our eyes to say the gospel makes sense. No one else would be saved, yet those who remain in the darkness who do not come to the light stand under his judgment for not availing themselves of this merciful opportunity. It keeps the glory of salvation, God, on God and in God alone. But secondly, I'll say this, it's a bulwark of eternal security. I think the, the doctrine of election is the bulwark of eternal security. We're gonna unpack this in a moment, but to suffice it to say for now, our confidence that we do get safely home, okay, must be based on something more secure than my choice. I, I believe it's gotta be something more than I, I chose. It's gotta be something more secure than myself. So that takes us to the second part from a belief that saves to a savior that secures, this is nine through 12. Look at your Bibles. Jesus continues, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world. This is, he's, he, he's, he's there now, but he's speaking about, he's getting ready to go to the cross. He's getting ready to ascend to the Father. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, only time he's ever addressed God the Father with Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Let's start with his statement. I'm not praying for the world. That, you know, we can read that and misread it and kind of like, well, wait, why is he not praying for the world? We got to read it within its context because we know and we understand in John's gospel, when it speaks of the world, it's speaking of, of humanity aligned against God 
It's speaking of a, of a world system that is against God, <laughs> that comes against a, a believer's faith. We do know that God created the world. So he's not speaking of the created place, you know, that he, he made, he said, it's good. We do know that God loves the world. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. So what is this? I'm not praying for the, for the world. We gotta look at it in its context. Jesus is about to depart and he is gonna give to these disciples a commission and it's to us as well. And that is that we would take the good news of the gospel to, to what? What does it say? To the world, <laughs> to the far corners of the world. So God is out to save the world. Now, the way he's gonna do that is through this small band of believers. And by the way, today, through those of us, you and I who follow him. And so in this context, what does Jesus do? He prays for these disciples that as they go into the world, which by the way, we've already read all the way through John, the world is against them. <laughs> the world's out to subvert their faith, to crush their faith. Jesus prays for them. But my goodness, to say that he doesn't love the world would be to violate the text itself because he's praying for those who are going to rescue the world. Does this make sense? It's like a boat that's sinking. And, and it's a storm and, you know, rescuers go out and we pray for the rescuers. That doesn't mean we don't care about the, the people dying in the boat. No, we, we care so much for them. We're praying for those who go to rescue them. Second thing we need to look at carefully is Judas. The back end, it's like, wait, well, he lost one. And, and we wanna be careful to see this is not what it's saying. The text says not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. It's not saying G Judas was, was saved. Okay, I lost one because the scripture said, I'll lose one. This is not what he means. Judas, is, his betrayal was prophesied. Psalm 41, David speaks of being betrayed, foreshadowing Christ being betrayed. Judas outwardly had all the appearances of one of the Christ followers. I mean, so much so that he's in the 12. I mean, how, how much closer can you get? But Jesus knows the heart. And what we note is when, Jesus, when Judas betrays Jesus, he's revealing his true heart and character. He never truly trusted. He's not included here in putting his confidence in Christ. And thus he was never saved. A, a way to read this passage, I think James Montgomery Boyce can help us. Look on the screen. Here's how he translates this. Just to note that it's, Jesus didn't lose one. He was never saved. It, 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 it reads this way. This is an interpretation, of course, but it's a, it's a paraphrase that helps us understand. I have lost none of them whom you have given me, none at all. But the son of perdition is lost as has been prophesied by the scripture. Now, onto the keeping that he's praying about. Jesus is praying for the Father to keep them. That is in Jesus's absence, which is coming because he's going to the cross and his absence, which is coming because he's then after that gonna ascend to the Father. Okay, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, even now as I speak. Um, he's praying that God, the Father would, would keep his disciples. That is to say that just, he says, you know, I've kept and guarded them right up to this point, okay? Not lost one. Father, in my, when I depart, will you keep them 
all the way to the end. We can say it this way. Jesus prays that through all the world will throw at Christ followers, he prays that the Father will get them safely home. I want to reach back and grab something in this particular section that I, I, I skipped over earlier because I knew I would cover it here. Look back up at verse six. I'm speaking of the name of, of God. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people. And there in the middle of verse 11, it says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Verse 12, I have kept them in your name. What does this mean, your, your, your name? Well, we know that for, for the Hebrew people, for, for a Jew, that a name is not just the you know, the moniker on your name tag says Brad, <laughs> says Scott, says Jill. No, it's, not, it's not just that identifier, but the name, a name is who you are. A name holds your whole character, your whole being, <laughs> your nature and all that you are. It's held in the name. Jesus manifested the name of the Father. It doesn't mean he told people, God is Yahweh. God is Yahweh. No, he's not talking about that name. He, 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 he was able to show and tell people, this is what God is like. This is God's nature. This is God's heart. This is God's purposes and plans. The psalmist says, those who know your name put their trust in you. What did he mean? If you know God's name is, you know, Yahweh, you put your trust in him? No, those who know God's character, right? You see this, put their trust in him. So our eternal security, whether we get safely home, rest in part, can I say this? Upon the name of God, his character, what he says about himself. And oh my, there's a lot to say. He's the beginning and the end, the ancient of days, the mighty God. He's the God who sees the creator, everlasting God, God almighty. He's the self-existent one. He's the God who says, I'm God with you. He's the Lord who sanctifies, that is, sets us apart and unto. He's the Lord, our healer. We've been singing this. He's the Lord, our shepherd, our righteousness, our rock. He's the faithful God. He's faithful when we're not faithful. He's merciful, gracious, and kind. He's sovereign, infinite, loving, good, all-powerful, all-knowing, holy, patient, unchanging. He's promised that nothing can separate us from his love for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's his name. How sure am I of my eternal security? How certain I'll get through this world when I'm struggling, when it seeks to subvert my faith and trust, how certain can I be? Can I give you two things from this text? Number one, I've said it, the name of God. How well do I know my God? 
his name and all that he is. <laughs> that, that it, it, it puts trust in my soul when I recognize who he is, all he is and all he said and promised. Secondly, how sure can I be? I'm gonna ask you this question and I really want you to think about it. How certain are you that God the Father is going to answer Jesus's prayer? I'm really, really certain. And I hope you are. God the Father will answer this prayer. Listen to the writer of Hebrews. This is Hebrews 7:25. Jesus, you know, is it's not just that Jesus is praying this prayer for them. Y'all, let me remind us. Jesus is praying for you right now. He never stops interceding. Hebrews 7, 25, he is able to save to the uttermost. And I, I put this in there in the text. This is not in the text, but he is able to save to the uttermost. That is forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. I don't have that on the screen, but it's Hebrews 7, 25. He is able to save to the uttermost. That is, he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That is because he's praying right now. <laughs> the father will bring you and I safely home. No, no wonder, may I say this, this prayer moves toward the joy that sustains. Last part of the text, verse 13, look at it with me. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus doesn't say, now I'm coming to you, Father. And so I pray they would have joy. No, no. He says that my, they, they would have my joy fulfilled. And here, Jesus defines the only joy that fulfills, that, that makes whole. <laughs> the only joy that as I say, satisfies. The only joy that lasts, the only joy that remains present even in the midst of the world, okay? Where there is hardship, suffering, crisis, pain, and brokenness. And yes, even death. It's gotta be his joy. So how can that be? Well, because it's Jesus's joy. And he, Jesus experienced joy, even as he experienced hardship, suffering, crisis, pain, loss, brokenness. And by the way, he experienced all of that y'all in a measure that we can't get. We can't even comprehend. And yes, even in death. The writer of Hebrews, I'm gonna go back there because he's describing at one point the suffering and mocking and the hardship of the people of God. And, um, and he's, he's answering this question, how did they get through that? And, and by the way, the pretext to the verse I'm, I'm gonna show you in a moment is it says they, they, those who suffered mocking, flogging, chains, imprisonment, stoning, being sawn in two, being pierced by the sword, who had no home, were afflicted, mistreated. Well, how, did they, how did they keep the faith it, through that? And thus 
in a deep sense, the joy of Jesus. Verse 12, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith because of the joy awaiting him. He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And now he's seated at the place of honor beside God's throne. And by the way, at that place of honor, guess what he's doing? He's praying. <laughs> he's doing what he's doing here. He's praying for you and for me. Biblical joy Jesus's joy is non-circumstantial. If, if, if joy requires, and I, I just get, I get sick on this all the time, y'all. I struggle, I struggle with this, but if, if joy requires everything in your world to be as you wish it would be, everything in your world to be as you feel it should be, Okay, if that's, it's gotta get all, everything's gotta get all lined up. Everything, everything's good. I got joy. Then you'll never have joy. We, if you're old enough, you understand that. that. That'll never happen in this fallen world, in this fallen body. But I think there's a deeper reason why that will never happen. If we feel like, you know, everything needs to be as, as I want it to be and as it should be. There's, there's another reason that won't bring you joy and that would be this, because you've then placed your faith, you've, you've then placed yourself in the place of God. Who can say this is how my life must be? Who, who, who can say this is how my life should play out? You see that? Like, you step into that and you're stepping into the deity realm. No, God, God is sovereign. God shapes our lives. God knows what's best and good and right and whole for us. Only God. But what if your joy were based not on the circumstances of life, but on the conviction that God is answering Jesus's prayer for you? Like the basis of my joy is that God is answering Jesus's prayer for me always in every moment and in every tomorrow. Oh, this is the ground of joy. I'm gonna ask you to ponder this question for a moment. I'm gonna put it on the screen. It's, it, it's not a question, really a statement that I'd like us to use to kind of move us toward this application. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back out, come to the table in a moment, but look up at this screen for a moment. Just sit for a moment. You know, when we teach through, when we teach the Bible and you know, we, we recognize it's not just to be able to go, okay, that was interesting or okay, I think I understand that. But it's, how does this change us? How does God's word shape Christ in us? Let's sit for a moment with this. And I want you to answer this for yourself. If God the Father is answering Jesus's prayer in John 17 and answering the prayer of Jesus that he's praying for me right now, when I say that, I mean that, that Jesus, see, it's not just that Jesus prayed that prayer, it's that Jesus knows exactly where you are, what's going on in your world right now. He knows and he's interceding on, on your behalf. If that's true, I can know with certainty Blank, And I left that there just to make you wrestle in a sense with, but then I can know that I'm gonna let, I'm gonna let you answer that. I can know with certainty. I mean, for, you know, for me, I mean, just to get you started in a sense, then I can know with certainty I'm gonna get through this. God, 
God, God is using this thing that I don't like for my good and his glory. Whatever it may be, you, are you with me? Sit for a moment and see where the spirit leads you. What can you know with certainty if these things are true? Heavenly Father, thank you that we can sit here today and know that you answer Jesus's prayer. What he asks, you do. And that we can sit in this moment and know, Lord Jesus, that you intercede for us now. And even we're reminded the Spirit's interceding for us with words and groanings that can't even grasp with our ears, but you hear and know and thus with certainty, we can rest recognizing your rule and reign that you are always acting on our behalf. This we know. Your name reminds us and tells us that it's so. Let me invite you to take the Lord's table elements, please. If you missed it, they're in the arcade. If you're new here, we take the table each week. If you've placed your faith in Christ, the table is, is for you. If you're a guest, we welcome you at it. Just take the bread and hold the bread, and then take the cup and hold the cup. Let's stand together, please. bread and cup in hand, this ordinance that Jesus has given us. Lord Jesus, thank you that in this table week by week, we're reminded that your body was broken for us, broken for us. You suffered for us. We say, thank you. Receive the bread. in the cup, we're reminded that you poured out your life for us. You died for us. And each time we take this table, we are proclaiming, yes, you did that at a moment in time some 2,000 years ago. It also reminds us that you're coming again in a future day to set all things right. Of this, we're convinced and we're grateful. Receive the cup.
Jesus speaks of the name of God, that all is in the name of the Father. So we lift our voices this morning to remind ourselves of some of those names and what those names mean and how trusting that name shapes our very soul and deepens our hope.